This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents, or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 42nd episode of The Quarterbin, I'm looking at Checkmate 17 from DC Comics, cover dated October 2007. But first, a little feedback about episode 40, where Scott Gardner joined me to talk about the epic ROM number one. Kyle Benning, the Metropolis Kid, echoed many's thoughts with the opening of his email, Holy crap, ROM number one for 25 cents? That is the best quarter spent in the last decade! I think you may be right about that, Kyle. I think you may be right. An already awesome show gets an awesome guest host equals a super winner episode. (laughs) I love ROM and really dug this. I know you're both very busy, but I would totally be on board for the occasional ROM podcast by you two gents. That would be fantastic. You know, Kyle, I think that would be fantastic. (laughs) ROM is pretty much my perfect wheelhouse title. A licensed property comic produced by Marvel in the late 70s and early 80s. I cut my teeth on Marvel's G.I. Joe and Transformers. Written by Bill Mantlo with art by Sal Buscema, my definitive Hulk creative team. The last few wishes I had of this series as a kid just blew me away. Unlike so many of the other great Marvel licensed properties, Rom actually had frequent crossovers and guest appearances with Marvel mainstays. That definitely makes him unique. I do have high hopes that someday Rom rights will come back to Marvel. Hasbro released a vinyl Rom figure as a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive, and with the already great relationship between Marvel and Hasbro, I'm hoping they can work something out. Kyle and I went back and forth a bit, and he added this comment as well. Mantlo just turned out an amazing volume of work during the 70s and early 80s. I'm really happy that with the success of Guardians, that Mantlo is starting to get more appreciated for not only his Rocket Raccoon creation, but also the rest of his fantastic body of work. For so long, it seemed like he was only regarded as the guy who wrote the not-so-popular run of Alpha Flight after John Byrne left. It's great to see that stigma dropped and his better stuff popping back up into the spotlight and getting more appreciation. Thanks for that feedback, Kyle. Did I mention that Kyle hosts the very fun podcast King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun? And that he's from Iowa? Well, now you know. (laughs) Bob Fisher confessed to doing what I had done, selling his complete runs of ROM, Moon Knight, and Transformers in his personal Great Comics Purge of 2005. Mark Adams also commented about his love for ROM, and Gene Hendricks made a connection that neither Scott nor I had. You know, listening to the description, I've never read ROM myself. He sounds more like Beta Ray Bill than the Silver Surfer, being surgically altered to save his race by hunting down, protecting from wraths or demons. But that's probably my Walt Simonson fanboy coming through. That's an interesting take, Gene. Thanks for that. 
Last episode, I mentioned the feedback I've been getting from the people associated with and members of the ROM Space Knight Art blogspot.com community. Shlomo Ben Hungstein posted a link to the episode on that page, as well as posting this comment. Great podcast, guys. I really enjoy that, as I imagine most any ROM fan would. I like how you guys focused on the million-dollar question in regards to the rights issue. Like you guys said, what the heck's the holdup? <laughs> that was the theme of the feedback, as evidenced here by another comment by a listener named Joseph. Cool podcast. Enjoyed it very much. Always nice to hear some ROM love. Regarding Parker Brothers, they're now a subsidiary of Hasbro, so should own the rights of his usage. Something must have transpired between them and Marvel to release the ROM Mighty Muggy not too long ago. Hopefully, with this Mighty Mug, a start of bringing him back will follow, along with allowing him to return on the pages. I hope so. I still think there's something else going on here, that some of the reprint rights or toy rights, etc., must be tied up somehow, like used as collateral for a loan or bonds or pledged in some other business deal or licensed out at some point in a convoluted arrangement somewhere along the line. I just I don't understand what's holding it up, but something must be. Derek Burke got with me via Twitter. Love your podcasting, sir. Makes me excited to go bin diving for forgotten gems. Working on ROM and Micronauts runs, and I'm so close. <laughs> Good luck with finding those missing issues, Derek. And thanks for all that feedback, everybody. And now, on to our issue for this episode. Checkmate 17 had a cover price of $2.99, meaning I acquired this comic at well over a 90% discount. The story, Firewall, was written by Greg Rucka and Eric S. Troutman, with art by guest penciler Chris Samney and guest inker Steve Bird. The cover, by Kalman Andrasovsky, shows some freaky-looking seven-armed dude firing seven different weapons in seven different directions. It's certainly eye-catching. The story itself starts in The Castle, Checkmate Super Duper High Tech Mega Secure HQ. Fun fact, Checkmate's Mountain Fortress is a high-value target for every terrorist faction, criminal cartel, or masked lunatic with a cause. The castle houses a database, the Intel Hub, containing damn near every dirty secret on the planet. It's the holy grail of espionage. A guy in a green and gold jumpsuit is crying in pain, with blue energy crackling around him. We flip to the two-page splash and see a total of six of these dudes surrounded by checkmate operatives, and a guy in a tan trench coat, Carl Draper. Checkmate gets his 24-7. While checkmate operatives run around saving the world, I protect checkmate. We learn that today is a big day for Carl Draper. Currently a security consultant, he is being interviewed for the position of Castellan, the call sign for the castle's head of physical security, which is kind of odd considering that Draper has a bit of a past as the supervillain Death Trap. I would tell you all about his past fighting Superman, but I'll let Mike Paley and Jeffrey Taylor tell you about him when they get to November and December of 1994 in the coverage on their excellent podcast, 
from crisis to crisis. Post-crisis, Draper took the name Master Jailer. All we need to know for now is that Carl and his daughter Carla were high-priced security experts with big-money clients like LexCorp, Star Labs, Cord Industries, etc. After the whole thing with Superman, Checkmate tracked him down and brought him into the organization as a security employee. Draper's only buddy at Checkmate, David Saeed, takes him to the interview room and tells him to relax, while he, David, presents his case in favor of Draper to the leadership. The leadership includes Mr. Terrific, Amanda Waller, Sasha Bordeaux, and King Faraday. Just sit back while David tries to convince the heads of the most powerful intelligence agency on Earth that a reformed villain should be guarding the hen house. I am completely screwed. Checkmate leadership appreciates the system that Draper has developed, but are unsure of him. Black Queen Sasha Bordeaux sums up the situation. With what he's seen here, we can't just send him back to prison if he fails. If he pops his cork, let's be crystal clear about how far we're prepared to go. Bordeaux terrifies Draper. The look she throws me doesn't help. It's terrifying. Not as bad as the time she caught me staring at her, though. They move on to his systems test, which places Draper in a virtual reality type of scenario, allowing him to visualize all potential threats to the castle. In short order, he neutralizes an attack by combat troops. That kicked off two hours of tests, each more difficult than the last. Ground assaults, aerial attacks, all wrapped up in moments. But they were preliminary bouts. Now, it's time for the title fight. Amanda Waller's bishop is Thinker, an AI construct who enters the virtual world as the final test. He quickly finds the Code Zoo, a repository of artificial intelligence. Every AI that Checkmate has ever encountered is locked away in the zoo. Theoretically, unhackable. Naturally, it should be candy to the Thinker. But Thinker quickly finds himself battling a version of himself designed by Draper, although he admits he got the idea from Mr. Terrific. After defeating Thinker, more tests come. It's a good sign that it's shaping up to be a very busy day. Draper dispatches a Civil War-era robot, this year's graduating class from the Academy of Crime, and an alien astronaut. Then he gets a warning from the precogs. That's bad, because it means something got by the perimeter sensors, meaning some level of magic is involved. Magic is not exactly my area of expertise, Draper admits. It's the multi-armed thing from the cover. There's nothing about it in the system, and no obvious weakness to exploit. The being is finally identified as the Mauser, a supernatural being with perfect aim and invulnerability. Whoever sent the Mauser knew what they were doing, hit us exactly like I would have. Remembering something he learned from magic consultant Sebastian Faust, son of Felix, he sets up a portal talisman. It can send a target to all kinds of mystical locations. In this case, a particularly dull corner of limbo. But the systems have been compromised, and more attackers are pouring into areas surrounding the castle. There's only one other protected generator I have access to, and I'm not supposed to tap into it. But screw it. They can fire me. He uses the last weapon he has, boom tubes. 
I've used them once before, during my celebrated villain period. The targets were Superman and Mr. Miracle, so you can imagine how well that worked. The tubes that he uses here have the same entry and exit point in four-dimensional space, twisting the tube into an infinite loop. No exit. Ever. Draper does get the job, and Mr. Terrific is the first to congratulate him. You did well, Castellan. Very well. Under normal circumstances, I'd be pleased by the successful test of my system and the brisk nod Ms. Bordeaux gives me on her way out. His buddy David advises him to get a good night's sleep. 05.30 comes early. I nod and smile, promise to get some rest. But I can't. I have some research to finish up. And then we move into Carl's room, which has a Superman dartboard and lots and lots of newspaper clippings. Fact 1. Whoever hit us knew a lot about our defenses. Fact 2. Whoever hit us knew a lot about me and how I operate. Fact 3. It's as if someone is out there trying to pick up my criminal career right where it left off. Someone who was close enough to me to phone in the tip that led Checkmate to my door. There's no proof, just a sick feeling in my stomach. And while these narration boxes tell us this info, we see Carl making a phone call, evidently leaving a message. I know we haven't spoken in a while, but this is important. You have to listen to me. I know what you've been up to, and it has to stop. These people, if I can figure it out, you can bet they will too. Please call me back soon. I'm your father. I love you, Carla. The only place you can get the new Alibi Jones adventure is on Glow in the Dark Radio. The Solar Alliance has a new prime representative who's no friend to Alibi's family, politics. A ghost ship has appeared out on the depot fringe, and public revelations of some of Alibi's past are about to blow up. Kind of like how he blew up a whole city that time. I'm author and reader Mike Luoma, bringing you new chapters free each week from the forthcoming Alibi Jones and the Hornet's Nest. Get episodes or subscribe on iTunes or through glowinthedarkradio.com on Facebook at slash glowinthedarkradio. The Ultraverse Network begins now. Over 20 years ago, Malibu Comics debuted the Ultraverse. It may not have lasted long, but the creativity and quality of its titles and creators caught many readers' imaginations when it first appeared and in the years since. This network of fans celebrates the fun and excitement of the Ultraverse and its awesome writers, artists, and characters. Featuring three ongoing podcasts covering a variety of topics, including Nightman and Solitaire, our blog will feature regular coverage of The Strangers, Sludge, Firearm, Ultraforce, and all your other favorites. Look for Ultraverse Network on iTunes and visit our website at ultraversepodcast.com. We are giving Ultraverse fandom a jumpstart. And we're back. I have not read a ton of Greg Rucka, but I consider myself a fan of him. I've heard him interviewed a number of times, and have even followed him on Twitter, and he just seems like a good bloke. My exposure to his comic work is mostly through 52, which I'm a big fan of, as well as the Gotham Central book book he wrote with Ed Brubaker. He also wrote Batman, The Tencent Adventure, which we covered back in episode 14 of the Quarterbin podcast. And there was a connection between that issue and this one, the character of Sasha Bordeaux. 
I was so far out of comics in the early 2000s that I have no idea how she got from there to here. But here, she seems pretty awesome. She doesn't do anything particularly awesome in this issue, but solely based on Carl's reaction to her, she seems pretty awesome. And I don't remember that in the Ten Cent Adventure that she had a blue streak in her hair, but she does here. But that is just a small portion of Rucka's overall output. But again, I do consider myself a fan, and I've heard good things about his work on Checkmate. One of the things I like about Rucka is that he is not a writer of comic books, he's a writer of fiction. He has more than a dozen novels or novelizations to his name. I like the multimedia aspect of his Queen and Country series, which consists of 32 comic book issues and three novels, at least one of which takes place between issues of the comic series. And it has been in various stages of development as a motion picture for years. But on to Checkmate, sorry about that digression. Over the last few quarterbin sales and trips to half-price books, I've picked up about ten issues of Checkmate because of my affinity for Greg Rucka. In organizing them one day, I realized, whoops, I had books from both volumes of Checkmate all mixed together. Checkmate was originally published starting in 1988 and ran 33 issues, all written by creator Paul Kupperberg. DC reinvigorated the title in 2006, with Rucka writing or co-writing the first 25 issues of what ended up being a 31-issue run. Now, in general, I like Kupperberg's work well enough, and and who knows, maybe we'll look at one of those early Checkmate books uh, from his run for a little compare and contrast. But I specifically wanted to look at one of the issues from the Rucka run at this point in the quarter bin. So, in this version of Checkmate, the organization operates under a UN charter and uses the Rule of Two, making up the white and black squads. Its specific purpose is to maintain balance between Earth's human and metahuman communities in the wake of events like the OMAC Project and Infinite Crisis. Every powered or enhanced human and Checkmate leadership must have a non-powered counterpart in a corresponding position of power. And a nice throwback to those roll calls that Justice League and other team-up books would have, this issue includes across the top of the first two-page spread the current lineup of King, Queen, Bishops, and Knights of the White and Black Squads. Picking this issue out at random to read, this lineup scroll came in very handy at keeping track of the uh, organization chart of Checkmate. That's needed because this is a true ensemble book, with a ton of characters, most of whom don't wear fancy, easy-to-identify superhero costumes. And as faithful listeners to this show know, as much as I enjoy superhero comics, I enjoy other kinds of comics as well. I mentioned Rucka and Brubaker's crime book Gotham Central, which is really good. And you know my list of favorite books include a sword and sorcery book, Warlord, a private investigator book, The Maze Agency, and a mercenary spy thriller book, John Sable Freelance. So, you know, an espionage title like this, with nary a cape nor a cowl to be seen, could definitely work for me. And this one mostly did work for me. I was a little worried about picking Checkmate, because my impression is that it is a modern book in the sense of containing long-form story arcs. 
So the fact that this was mostly a standalone was an advantage in terms of being picked for the quarterbin. I don't know the exact breakdown of work between Rucka and Troutman. By this point, Rucka had solo credits on about half of Checkmate and co-writing credits on the rest. This was Troutman's first credit with one of the big two, and only his second year as a comics pro. So I suspect that Rucka did the outlining, either with Troutman or not, with Troutman then doing the actual scripting. But that's merely a hypothesis. Uh, Either way, having this story from Carl Draper's POV helped keep the story tight, and, and I thought that he was characterized consistently through the story. Also, the story taking place completely over not much more than 24 hours in a really small geographic location really helped keep the story focused. And I liked the small, non-epic nature of this story. There was enough action to keep it moving, although some of the action was tests and virtual stuff without real consequences. But the story moved, and we were so in Draper's point of view that I think I really came to know him. By about halfway through the issue, I found myself really wanting him to pass the test and get that job as Castellan. Chris Samney and Steve Bird did a fine job with the Archers. I've seen plenty of representations of battles in cyberspace or virtual reality spaces, but the four pages devoted to that in this issue had a nice liquid feel and a green and blue color scheme. So, for the first time ever, in the august history of the Quarterbin Podcast, I declare props to the colorist. Santiago Arcas. Job well done. Of course, I was hesitant to pick up a book from as late as 2007, excluding the free Comic Day book and the Constantine issue. This is the newest book I've covered on the podcast. And when a book drops in value more than 90% in seven years, that's a bad sign. So I checked the Comicron website, which reports and analyzes the diamond sales figures. And for this month, Checkmate was about DC's 50th biggest seller, just below JSA Classified and above Blue Beetle and the all-new Atom. So it was not a big seller by any means. But still, kind of surprised to see it discounted so drastically, so quickly. The verdict on Checkmate 17. Well, I don't feel like I got a truly representative Checkmate story. This took place between longer arcs, was mostly a standalone, maybe even a fill-in, and did not have as much of the action-adventure espionage stuff that I was expecting. Like I said, I do have a few more checkmates in the database, and if I see more marked down this much, I'll probably pick them up. Again, like I said, I think the title has a pretty good reputation, and I look forward to a more typical story coming up in the randomizer sometime. But for what it was for what it tried to do, it succeeded. It told a small, mostly character-based story, and it did so quite effectively. Definitely worth the 25 cents, no doubt about that. That wraps up my coverage of Checkmate 17, bringing episode 42 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 43, we'll stay here in the recent past, in the mid-2000s, just a few months before this issue, as a matter of fact. 
In that episode, we'll look at New Avengers number 26 from Marvel Comics, cover dated January 2007. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.